Welcome to Middle School Walk and Talk, a podcast series offering heart, hope, and health to members of our middle school communities. Take a walk with co-hosts Phyllis Fagel and Joe Mazza as they discuss self-care, student well-being, school culture, and more. Middle School Walk and Talk is a production of the Association for Middle Level Education and is designed to support the concepts outlined in our foundational text, The Successful Middle School, This We Believe. Learn more at amle.org. Today's episode, Shamed Brains Can't Learn, with special guest Jen Court. Hey, Phyllis. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited. We are joined by someone today who's not only an expert in just about everything, but also a friend, someone I've known for many, many years. She also lives in my part of the world. She's a school counselor too, which is very exciting, or at least a former school counselor of 30 years and a former principal, a diversity practitioner, and the author of Hub, Help Us Begin, Strategies for Tough Conversations. And when I was in Portugal a few months ago for AMLE, we ended up having a really long, interesting conversation that led to an article I wrote for the Washington Post about helping kids stand up to hate. And that's what we're going to be talking to Jen about today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. An invitation to hang out with you all. I can't think of anything better. And to talk about this, where we can really be supporting kids. That's awesome. I'm still a counselor, by the way. 30 years, I'm a high school counselor still. (laughs) I can't let it go. Right on. And I and I've told you this personally, but out of the the 15, 16 sessions I went to at AMLE, yours was definitely the most thought provoking, engaging, even how to model, how to present and not like talk at people. It was engaging. So good stuff. And I and I was inspired then. So I'm super thrilled that we're able to talk with you on the uh the walk and talk today. Thank you. So Jen, I want to start with a comment you made that went completely viral. And I'm not surprised that that happened because it really resonated for me too. And it's this idea that a shamed brain can't learn. Mm -hmm. And that line we all have to walk as educators between teaching kids when they make mistakes, whether they draw a swastika on a desk or make a derogatory comment about someone's sexuality or race or any other kind of social identifier, we want to be able to have them come out of it with more sensitivity, more empathy, and not make the same mistake twice. We don't want them to get stuck in that shame. Can you talk a little bit about that quote and also how we might do that? Yeah, the the fear of making a mistake is is the most powerful deterrent to engaging in conversations, particularly around identifiers and hate. And that shame can be both for the adult and for the students. And so we want to really think about how to break that up and stop it. I mean, there's proactive. I always think of proactive, responsive in the moment and reflective. So proactively, what are you doing to create a space in your classroom? And how are you talking about how you can talk about differences? Um, And then react active is in the moment. What do you do in the moment? And sometimes that's just marking it in the moment and saying, you know, we need to come back to that. So everyone knows that you're aware while you think for a few moments. Um, But what we don't want to do is create things that add to the shame, which is calling kids out in front of anyone, which is both verbal and nonverbal. There's a lot of nonverbal calling out that happens. Um, And we also want to help to look at it as an education moment. 
with all the conversations we're having now around identity, those, um, sorry, those education comments are usually for the adult and for the student. They often need to learn together, which really supports overall the way we're growing. And then reflectively is looking back, what could I have done differently? So really wanting to focus on keeping us very present and open for learning. One of the things that I think about a lot is this idea that we tell kids to be kind. You know, we tell them you should be a good person, treat people the way that you would want to be treated. And it's kind of like telling someone to parallel park without teaching them how to parallel park. They really don't know what we're talking about. We have to actually give them the language, operationalize it for them. And when we were talking, something that stuck with me is this idea that kids tend to go in one of two extremes or three extremes, really. Either they say nothing, they're just kind of frozen. Uh, They blabber on and on and on and don't listen at all to any response, or they say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And we want to be arming them with those phrases, arming them with things that they can do, and also arming teachers with things that they can say in those moments. What advice do you give teachers? What advice do you give students if they're faced with something in the moment, that real-time situation? Yeah, it's the same for both. It's thinking about what you want out of that moment. I mean, things we don't want to do is is, um, if we simply say we don't talk about that here or that's not okay, that just teaches a child not to say it around you. It doesn't teach them not to say it. Um, We also, again, want to avoid the shame cycle. Um, I have long believed that when we're anxious, we tend to fill space with words and we go on and on, or we're quieter than we typically are. So use one sentence. Um, I also think it's really helpful for classrooms to think about intentional agreements. How are we going to be here? How are we going to navigate mistakes? Because mistakes are going to happen. And this is different than the kind of start of the year rules. That's great, but we need to review them and make them very um, elastic and we're working with them. And really importantly, think about how you would respond as a group. How will we respond when one of these agreements is tested or breached, which is when somebody says something along those lines. Always education, education of why. We can't assume kids know. And to your point, Phyllis, um, kindness is, I mean, that is something that is uniquely defined by individuals and often informed by their age, their geographic region, their um, cultural background and more. And so using those big words and expecting kids to live up to something is really not helpful. Um, Overall, just be really concrete, specific, supportive, and then um, educational. So what might they say? What's one example of a phrase that a kid might say to another kid in that moment? So a kid saying, oh, I had this happen a couple of weeks ago. I was working with some ninth graders and um, we were talking about leadership. It was the most beautiful example. We we're talking about leadership and they were all doing what I also see a lot of teachers do. Teachers, when they're thinking about our equity, are often thinking about to the children and not within themselves as well. So this leadership group was also thinking about how they will lead other people. But one of the students said um, something that was sexist. There was no other interpretation of it as sexist. So we had just been working on asking a question. And so one of the students said, I wonder what you meant by that. And then they had that conversation. It was simple. It's not a shame producing question. Um, And it also said to that other person, when you're asked that, it means that you could have said something, you know, that was hurtful. So just those kinds of short sentence stems that really allow them to save face, because if we're asking them to do things that um, are going to cause them to lose their friends, I mean, most kids, as you know, aren't going to do it. So we want them to start off with, 
what I think of as scaled responses, the most benign, and then build up from there. Is there a different response? And this is what I see so often in the middle school setting, kids cloak the hateful comment in humor, and therefore they don't have to be accountable for what they said because it was just a joke. You know, I put that in air quotes. And then the other kid might not want to challenge that comment because they don't want to be seen as someone who can't take a joke. Yet, probably many people in the room are feeling offended by whatever was just said. What's your advice for teachers and for kids in that situation? I'm assuming it's probably very similar for both. Well, it's yeah, it is similar for both. And I I try to come up with as many strategies as possible that work for students, teachers, and parents so that we're not trying to find that list of resources in the moment. Um, you know, yes, you cannot have intended to say something that was hurtful and that should be heard. We should be able to say that we didn't mean to, but we are also completely responsible for the impact we created. So this is not an either or, it's a both and. Um, and looking at it as, you know, what is my responsibility? You know, most people need to go on record as saying I didn't mean it or it was just a joke. Um, and then thinking about the impact. And I like to think of it as a 90-10 rule that 10% or less of time, energy, and words should be explaining your impact and 90% or more of time, energy, and words on attending to the harm caused. And I know some middle school advisors who actually practice it and they time it so that they can see how much time they're spending. They also ask this one school that all the teachers ask the students to let them know when they are not using the 1090 rule. I love that. And the fact that the teachers are willing to be called out for that is really important. It reminds me of a principal I spoke to recently, uh, Robbie Dodd at a high school locally at Walt Women High School, who said that when we have these conversations with kids, we can impart our expectations, but we have to be careful not to assume that we know what they need or what they want. And we have to ask them to really listen. And then he went on to say, and that's a really, really hard thing for us to do as adults, which I agree with. Do you have advice for what it looks like to operationalize listening as the adult in these situations, or maybe some mistakes that we tend to make that we can avoid? Yeah, I don't, I'm a very hopeful person, but I always think of mistakes first because that's how I learn. Um, I think some of the mistakes are to ignore it um, or to brush over it. I mean, one of the agreements that I use all the time with students is, you know, if you think I heard or saw something, but you didn't see me respond, you can tell me, you can tell someone else to tell me, but don't stop until you've been heard. Because a lot of times something is said that's painful in front of an adult. And the adult may not know how to respond, so they put it away. Um, they may be looking for things to be okay. And a lot of times it doesn't have the same impact as them. So when we have these kinds of agreements between students and adults, it sets us up in collaboration. Um, and that also helps with growth with, you know, the academics. People often think of these as separate skills, but, you know, kids who are doing project-based learning together or group work together, being able to communicate to, with each other, that's just as important as in any other space. So really wanted to think about it in that way. And one proactive thing, and I know it takes time out of the schedule, but even just having a minute or two when everyone comes into the classroom for some sort of transition moment can really help to set the stage so that they're not carrying those, those things. I think of them as like tentacles of the tentacles of all the stuff that happened to them before they came into class. Doesn't catch all of it, but it does say, hey, you're, you being here fully is really important. And, uh, you know, if you're a, a kid, you know, and you have all of your classes on your schedule throughout the day, there may be a, 
some of those classes have the culture set up where that is a natural thing that happens even without the teacher making this big deal. Um, and then we then we talk about you know the the advisory right the times where we have carved out to have some of these next level conversations over time. Can you suggest some advisory activities, whether from your book or just from your experiences that speak to this work? You know, I'm obsessed with advisory. And in fact, funny enough, I found um, the article, the first article I ever published 30 years ago, it said, well, in AMLE about the innovation of advisory. So, um, well, I think with advisory, uh, we have done a disservice in schools. Um, and what I mean by that is that advisors are a really limited group of people. And instead, if we think about it, we are all advising the kids all the time, whether that we are directly or indirectly, they're learning from us. So, you know, the hallway, entire relationships in middle school can begin, end, and happen in a single day in a hallway. So where are the adults in that space? So that's kind of the proactive is really being present in those moments. Um, but then also that's part of the transition idea that I had. And that's, you know, when you were in my session and AMLE having some things that when you come in, they can just take a moment. I often have, when I'm working with groups of students, I often have coloring things out or Lego or something that can occupy their hands and just give them a moment. Um, and that can help to bring them into the next space. It can also help when things are really rough. Like, let's just take a moment to have some quiet or settle here. Uh, so anything along those lines, I also think with advisors, we have not helped them very much because um, as a system of educating educators, we don't often teach people how to be an advisor. We, we hire them to be expert in their field. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to advise. So they need some skills around that, too. That one sentence that I mentioned, creating the intentional agreements um, that, you know, where they talk about, again, the culture of the space that they're in, which should be everywhere. Um, and then also, I love if you're having an actual advisory conversation, I love to have kids come up with the lessons. So you give them the topic and they work together and then they come up with something so that they're very much engaged in creating and maintaining the culture within their space. No doubt. The best advisory we had this year was written and created by kids. Um, and that has really kind of served us well in terms of other plans um, mm -hmm. and things that they've done. Um, but, you know, from a from a leadership lens, one of the most powerful things that I heard you say was, not everyone is an advisor and that's okay, you know, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you just think about your own kids and some people are really good at this. Some people just, this isn't their thing. Mm -hmm. So trying to force them into that um, is an uphill battle. And, um, you know, we have lots of people on staff. There's lots of different needs in the morning. And, you know, that's one of the things that we're already planning for next year is we're still going to keep the high number of advisors because during COVID we had the pods, and that really lowered the level from like 20 in a, in a homeroom advisory to like 12, 13. So we kept the low number of kids in an advisory by keeping the numbers high, but um, not at the expense of everybody doing an advisory and having some of them not be, you know, have the, the culture that we're looking for to, to build into. So you know, that's just, that, that was an important thing for us to, to be okay with. I think that both of you are making such important points about that comfort level. I often tell teachers, you know, everyone's a counselor right now. That doesn't mean you're comfortable with it. It doesn't mean you have the training. It doesn't mean you have the resources and it doesn't mean you have to approach being, you know, a quote unquote counselor the same way. It's just that everyone needs that 
type of warmth, that type of connection, and you can bring your strengths to the table. And it might look very different depending on who you are and what your temperament is. And I think about that sometimes when some child says something to another kid, like something I overhear on the playground that's unkind or something that I see in a text chain that another student shows me. So I, I'm not necessarily even directly observing it myself. And sometimes I see that happen and other teachers ignore it because they're uncomfortable. They don't know what to do in that moment. Sometimes it's after the fact anyway, and you'd have to circle back and that's uncomfortable too. And as Joe is saying, different teachers are going to have a different level of comfort. Different administrators are going to have a different level of comfort addressing it with the child, with the parents, with the kid who was harmed, with the kid who did the harm. If a teacher does get that secondhand information, or if you overhear something, do you have any tips that might work to help somebody not ignore it, but that don't overstep that, you know, we want to be giving kids some freedom to solve problems on their own as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of menus of coming up with some things that are within the limits of what is okay with you. So we wouldn't say to a child, especially in that space, because, you know, when their anxiety is going or their stress is going, it's really hard to think creatively. But if they could come up with two things that they're going to try and choose one, and then the teacher can add one as well. Um, so, you know, if you have, I was speaking to an advisor, seventh grade advisor recently, and what she does when her students are having a hard time is she says, you come up with one thing, we'll have a friend come up with one thing, and I'll come up with another. And hers is often that she tells the parents or tells the administration. But then the child gets to choose, and then it creates an automatic check-in. Let me know how this works. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. So menus are really helpful. I mean, anytime people have a choice over anything, it helps to foster agency and empowerment and creativity. Um, so anything along those lines. Also, I think, you know, the circling back is so worth it. If you, I had a sixth grader tell me that one of the most powerful things, he was a senior when he graduated, but I was his principal when he was in sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And he said in sixth grade, one of the most powerful things that happened was that a teacher and I apologized to him for a misstep that we had in the hallway. It was probably three months later. I had I don't even know that I was really aware of what it was because I was, you know, moving through the hallway and moving quickly. And biases always flourish when we're in a hurry. So I wasn't even really aware of it. But at his conferences, his mom mentioned that um, he wasn't feeling connected to this teacher. And this was the example. We went back and apologized to him and asked if there was something else we could do. And he said that that was one of the, that moment helped him to think about mistakes are not time limited. It's not as if it happens right then. And again, you know, I know we're all so busy. Teachers have so much to do, but having these kinds of moments, they don't have to take a lot of time. They can literally be in a couple of seconds, um, helps to get back time that you're going to have academically and in every other part with them. I love that. And you're modeling making amends. You're modeling that you can take accountability when you make a mistake and that that mistake doesn't define you, which I think sometimes kids in particular really worry about that they it's, drop it's, in our eyes. It's rare when you hear a story that involves vulnerability with an adult and a kid that doesn't turn out being this breakthrough conversation or pivotal moment, you know, between your relationship and that kid. Um, mm -hmm. But yet we're so we're, we're so it's just not in our comfort zone um yeah. you know especially some of the teachers that are you know just you know uh, you know just stuck right stuck in the, in in this space so 
Um, you know, advisory is just something I think we all have to just continue to fight for, um, because where is that happening elsewhere in the child's life? Mm -hmm. um, we were just, you know, had a podcast with uh, Samir Hinduja and, you know, a lot of the work that he's talking about, the parents are not having with the kid. And oftentimes here at school, we're not exactly in those particular conversations. So, you know, we've got to carve that out. We've got to be really intentional about it, protect those time and those minutes. Uh, those of us that, you know, continue to fight the middle school fight. Thank you yep. so much for, for being with us uh, today, Jen. Is there a place where you'd recommend people find you, your social media channels, your website? Oh, um, sure. And may I just add one other piece to what you were saying about advisory um, is to also think about, you know, to I just want to amplify what you said, protect it, because if we have advisory in the schedule and we take it for everything else, the unintentional message is it's not important, which undermines the teacher and undermines the culture and more. And then also to think about advisors as folks who are also not teachers. I work in a lot of schools where students don't have teachers who are the same race or gender or sexual orientation as them. And if there are other adults in the school who are willing to be in that space, it can really be a beautiful way to partner. Um, yeah, folks can always find me at my website, which is jencourt, it's C-O-R-T.com. I'm on all social media channels. And um, I put stuff out regularly. I, I'm not great about updating my website, but it comes through my social media channels most often. Thank you so much, Jen. I always learn from you. <laughs> That's how I feel with you. So thank you. It's a joy to be with you all.